G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As we do on a Thursday, always good to get insights on the biggest issues around the nation with Charles Newington, the National Director of Family Voice Australia. Hello, Charles. Welcome back. Oh, thank you, Neil. Good to be back. Charles, we've got you in Adelaide today, and uh, let's start with uh, one of those big, big stories. Uh, We haven't covered it a lot on 2020, but it's this Tamil family who have been in Australia since uh, earlier this decade, back to 2012-13. Government policy is not likely to change any time soon, though, insofar as letting this Tamil family stay in the nation. You've been reflecting on this, and uh, for some this looks very callous, Uh, To others, it ensures a policy of preventing unnecessary deaths at sea and a fair playing field for a generous immigration policy. But what are your overall thoughts for this Tamil couple and the challenges they've faced? Yes, it's a... um it's a it's a big story and a long story, as you mentioned. That uh, they came separately in 2012 and 2013, met and married and had a couple of children here in Australia. And they came during the uh, the previous Labor government uh, when there was a, a softer line about uh, borders. And um, I, I thought it was just helpful for people to realise quite how um, how big the story is in terms of migration. In that. Um, this couple uh, were part of a, a considerable wave of people that came in that time uh, from 2009 to 2013. And what had happened was, while the, they'd been tightening up um, the situation between people coming in from Indonesia, um, Sri Lanka became the next uh, stopping off point for the, 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 the boat people. And I was uh, quite amazed at the number of people that were involved in this, you know, that um, this couple uh, represent um, 5,557, uh, 5,757 asylum seekers on bridging visas living in the community today who, uh, who are still pursuing the legal challenge process. Uh, they came in during that time under labor. And then there's another 7,900 people who arrived at that time who have yet to have their claims processed. So we're talking thousands of people that came in during that time that are now living in community and in this sort of situation where by living in community, they're able to work to some degree, you know, and um, they get involved in the community. And so there are going to be lots of heartstrings attached to them. But the process that we have in place is that, um, you know, out of a sense of justice, we have this uh, considerable appeal system. Uh, and uh, there's this opportunity to go from one appeal to the next to the next, trying to prove that they have a case for asylum. And the majority, the vast majority of them, over 80% of them, don't have a case for asylum. And um, and uh, that has to that means that they came because of a, some severe and evident persecution or pressure. And that's not the case for the majority of the majority of them come for economic reasons. So this is uh, one of these things where you get the tension of um, public policy and, um, and, and human compassion on the streets and in the towns where these people uh, are living and making their living. 
and so therefore it becomes it is but it then becomes a uh, an opportunity for a political debate too uh, knowing that this family had settled as uh, we're led to believe reasonably well in the Billawila community and uh, Billawila listeners uh, uh, to our program today will know yes, whether probably. this family has uh, indeed settled very nicely in their community but I wanted to touch on something special here with you Charles because uh, there's not only been the political debate uh, Labor and the Greens really pushing the idea of uh, compassion to keep this family in Australia uh, the government uh, holding steady and saying no uh, this is not a refugee family we're going to need to send them home but there's another dimension in here and that is that of Labor's Christina Keneally who have baited the Prime Minister and even criticised him and and calling into doubt his Christian faith over not being compassionate to these people and she herself uh, with her Catholic foundations calls herself a Christian as well so you've got a you've got a Christian debate going on here what do you make sense of that and how do you make sense of that Charles? Yes well government has to formulate policies that are in the in the best interest in the broadest possible sense and uh, Australia has a very generous attitude toward uh, genuine refugee seekers and we have uh, one of the highest intakes from the UN refugee camps and there are literally hundreds of thousands of people still in uh, refugee camps for very legitimate reasons and um, uh, and these people you can see here how our values create a sense of um, a sense of moral responsibility for the true suffering in the world and um, so we are working on that. It, it, that's been a bipartisan commitment, and it's been something that's, just, that's, that's true to the Australian uh, sense of humanitarian uh, concern. And um, and uh, there is a limit, though. You know, there are always limits, uh, and there's a limit to the number of people that you can take from refugee camps or the number of people that you can take that are illegal asylum seekers. And and I, I like to go back to uh, the family situation, which is kind of the true... Uh, training ground for moral judgment. You know, that when parents are dealing with children, children by their very nature know how to push the buttons and how to test the boundaries. And whether it's the child not wanting to sleep at night or the child just grizzling about wanting some more lollies or something like that, and the parent has to set these boundaries and make, maintain these boundaries because if they don't, <laughs> the family's going to start to go, to, you know, go feral. And um, so that's... Um, that, is for me an example of how the family is kind of the testing, the testing ground and the proving ground of character and these fundamental values like um, humanitarian uh, concern and interest for for people who are for in a difficult situation and it just gets writ large in public policy, uh, but there are always boundaries and uh, and it's a really sad thing that uh, sometimes people. Um, you, you know, are on the wrong side of those boundaries. Uh, uh, but the thing is that if 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 the government is not if the government relaxes the line with them, that means that there is somebody there's somebody in a refugee camp somewhere who's been there perhaps for a decade or so and has been in the most difficult of circumstances. They can't come because of the fact that there's only so many people that can come in in any given year. Let's move to a different topic and uh, a few things to cover today, but one significant uh, issue, of course, the euthanasia, voluntary assisted dying 
legislation that's passed the West Australian Lower House uh, this week. And you've been reflecting, Charles, on just how significant and how it works. A little bit of a uh, even a sort of a process of how you can see this being demonstrated. The idea of a slippery slope. Uh, what are your thoughts on the developments, especially as they've happened in WA, but as these things have been happening around Australia with euthanasia legislation? Yes, I think we'd all recognise, wouldn't we, that what we might call socially liberal pol- uh, legislation, whether it's attitudes toward abortion or euthanasia or prostitution or whatever we're talking about, sexual sexual orientation, etc., the liberalisation of this kind of legislation, it starts in one state and it starts in a fairly um, what we might call contained uh, conservative way uh, and then it moves to the next state and it's liberalised a bit and it moves to the next state and it gets liberalised a bit. And so there's an actual pattern going on here and this pattern is a, it's a it's a global pattern it's what happens from from nation to nation and uh, not just in australia and uh, it's tar- it's provenly effective <laughs> and um so what we see is that the you know say you know activists in the case of voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia they look at the state that's most likely to uh, to, to to allow a foot in the door and in our case it's been victoria so in Victoria, the, the legislation was introduced in 2017, and it had many conditions on it. Um, but we see now that you know that it is active, and uh, something like 13 people have been identified and qualify for uh, voluntary assisted um, dying in, in Victoria. But what that does is it sort of it sets a responsible standard. Um, look how it's working, they say, and then the next states come in and they. They just depart from that high standard by a little degree here and a little degree there. But actually, these degrees are really, really serious. Um, Archbishop Aspinall of, of, of Brisbane said that, for instance, in West Australia, if a person meets a criteria, no doctor needs to be present. Oh, this is actually how it is in Victoria at the present moment. Mm. Um, um, but but this, this, this shifting of standards is so critical because now in Western Australia... The critical change is that the doctor may actually introduce this subject of euthanasia or a voluntary assisted dying to a patient, which is not currently legal in Victoria. So the initiative shifts, and now a doctor who has an interest in, in, in this can become actually an agent of it. And uh, it just shifts, the, it shifts the, the line, you know, what's called that. that uh, where it is in Victoria at the present moment, there's a barrier placed there to it becoming the default position in the case of patients viewing end of life. You know, whereas, the, so that it's not on the table in Victoria that a doctor can say, have you considered euthanasia? You know, but now in, in Western Australia, it's now on the table. So doctors can say, look, your condition is serious. Have you considered um, voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia? So it's shifted the ground and it just changes lots of things. Well, it is a very adequate description of what it is when you talk about a slippery slope and when you say start with the state most likely to liberalise its laws. And as you identify, Victoria was that state under the Andrews government. And uh, now with Western Australia introducing the idea that uh, doctors can even ask the question, hey, how would you like to end your life? I mean, this, as you say, these sound like little changes uh, in conditions, but they're actually huge changes in conditions. Uh, Charles, huge changes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, butting in because they they are changes to the culture. 
the social norm, the expectations of people and the fears of people when going to a doctor. And not only that, they affect things like health insurance companies and health departments when this thing is on the table. So what we see here is it's a kind of one of those one of those deep things that's not talked about but that's having an influence on how the culture, how people relate to each other. It changes it. You know, one of the reasons why um, uh, 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 things changed in, in, in the New Northern Territory when Marshall Perrin introduced this bill the first time in the world in 1999 was because of the impact of the bill upon the Aboriginal community because it changed their perception. We may think it's oversimplified, but it changed their perception of the medical services. They thought to themselves, some of them, you know, it was a kind of a, a sort of a, a kind of a talk around the, 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 the community well or whatever the situation where people chatted was that it looked like medication, the medical services were now becoming an agent of ethnic cleansing, you know, of dealing with, um, um, with the Aboriginal uh, population, and they took it very personally. And uh, so, um, you know, there's no... When you introduce a legislation like this, or the thought of it, that it, it needs to very carefully uh, thought through, not just in the in the in the hierarchies of the medical profession and the political profession, but in the community, how the community actually sees this and responds to it. Well, it is so so serious, as you say, and uh, this idea of uh, you know the domino effect. And bringing us to a point now where we might all shudder at the idea of even a visit to the doctor if we feel like we've got something serious. And the idea that the doctor might well be uh, someone who'd ask us the question, uh, would you like to uh, lose your life, uh, take this medication? And uh, as you raise such a significant point, uh, the idea of fear in entire communities, and uh, given that there is a mix of ethnic communities right throughout Australia, uh, there might be some who are shuddering at this sort of idea that uh, the idea of ethnic cleansing could be uh, in some political motivation that might even be influencing uh, the uh, medical uh, procedures that happen in our doctor's surgeries. Uh, I must make it very clear. I'm I'm, I'm sure that's not in anybody's mind uh, who's... uh, who's, seeking to enact this legislation. They're trying to provide people that they feel are in a very, very difficult situation uh, health-wise a fair fair and compassionate um, opportunity. But life is not like that because there are always other players and there are always these knock-on effects. And it's the consideration of all those things when you move a critical line like this. And for some people, you know, the fact that it's on the table will make them go to the doctor more quickly for other people, it'll make them go, oh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm, I'm ready for that conversation. Yeah. And uh, so wise, no doubt, Charles, for us to hold tight to our Christian foundation, our Judeo-Christian foundation, which gives us yes. true value as a human being because we recognize we're created in the image and likeness of God. It's the thing that gives us exactly. this value, and uh, we need to hold tight to that. Uh, Charles, uh, only a few more minutes remaining. I don't want to miss your insights into what's happened, of course, uh, with the religious freedom issues, the exposure draft of religious discrimination bill. It's been widely discussed through the week. Uh, you've been contemplating uh, just what it is that Christians are concerned to protect. Uh, what are your thoughts here? 
Exactly, yes. Thank you. Because there's a sort of a segue from the, from the euthanasia thing to, to this religious uh, freedom issue. That for, for many people, particularly people who don't practice uh, faith regularly, they tend to think about religion just in terms of the, the buildings with spires or domes or whatever that are around our various cities. Um, or, or, you know, the kind of clothing that people wear and, and the, uh, the eccentric um, behaviours that they might have. They tend to think of it like that. But religion is not so much a set of doctrines or, or, or social behaviours. It's the, the deep values that, 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 that drive uh, the believer. And what we believe about God informs what we believe about humanity. As you, as you say, we are made in the image and likeness of God, according to the Christian faith. These are the biggest possible words God could speak about people yeah. to say that we are made in his image and likeness. And this, this is just a huge privilege, a huge statement about the value of humanity. But it also, it's true not just about humanity, it affects the way we relate to the planet, the material world, not just the social world. It, it relates to everything we do in this life. It informs our views and our actions about sexuality, about gender, about mortality, about the sanctity of life, about the institutions of marriage. And further than that, it shapes our life as a life of service for God and for humanity. And this is one of the things that are some, that's being missed here, that when we talk about a hospital or a school or a welfare agency or a charity that was established out of a spiritual base, out of a faith base, people that work in those environments do it as an expression of their faith. They do it as, as an expression of who God is and, and who people are in the, in the economy of God. And so we're not just talking about the, the practical bricks and mortar or the, the, the social interactions, as it were, but why people are in those institutions and what those institutions are really about. And so I say to people today that every sincere believer carries this sense of vocation into life. It's not just for doctors and nurses in the caring professions. But whatever we're doing, whether it's in customer service or, or in designing and building structures to make sure the materials are safe and adequate for the task, our faith is what gives us the sense of, of purpose and defines what, what, uh, what work is and what life is uh, by, um, by reason of the value of human beings. So we don't put um, fire combustible cladding on a building if we know it endangers people. We don't put inferior products into, uh, into vehicles or, or medicines or whatever. It's that moral awareness that keeps, us, uh, in, keeps our integrity and keeps the purity of our process. And if you start saying that that is not important to society or that it's less important to society than some other protected attribute, then what we are in fact doing is we're actually drawing the very soul and moral character of a nation out and leaving just a, a shell. Charles Newington, this is why we love your insights. You've nailed that so beautifully today. The value of our faith, the things that we believe will in fact shape the way that we behave in our society. And if we lose that religious freedom, if we lose the opportunity in the marketplace to be open and upfront uh, with the values and the beliefs uh, that shape our lives, that shape our communities, uh, we're in deep trouble. Uh, Charles, uh, just before I let you go, of course, uh, you've got something coming up on the 14th of September. Just wanted to mention uh, the Family Voice New South Wales Annual Conference in Sydney. The theme is Church and State. 
Sydney, 14th of September at Alpha Crucis College in Parramatta. Uh, I imagine people can uh, find out about that uh, conference uh, on your website too, familyvoice.org.au. What are you anticipating? Very quickly, what are you anticipating for your conference? Well, we've got great speakers, people like Greg Sheridan giving us kind of a media perspective and Senator of uh, Conchetta Fioranti-Wells, you know, who's taken a, a, a courageous position on the matter of freedom of religion. And um, old Reverend uh, uh, Fred Nile, you know, he's there. He made some amazing statements about abortion in, in the abortion debate in New South Wales. I'm, I'm going to print some of that stuff on our website. It's great. so wonderful. So there's great speakers there. Okay. Well, uh, for listeners, 14th of September, that's not far away, familyvoice.org.au. Charles Newington, the National Director of Family Voice Australia. Charles, thanks so much for being with us again today on 2020. Oh, thank you again, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.